Hey gang, you're listening to the R&R Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and today we get to talk about gunshot wounds, which is one of those magical unicorn type topics here in Canada, where our rates of gun violence are just so low. So on one hand, it makes us very, very lucky to live in a country like this. But on the other hand, it means we're very, very unprepared when this type of violence actually does roll in through your doors. So to help us with that, I'm going to be talking to my friend Adrian Stedford, who seems to have had quite a few of these in the last little while. I mean, you have seen three more gunshots in the last six months than I have in like my whole career almost. So, you know, that's a lot. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm Adrian Stedford, and I'm a full-time emergency physician in a rural BC community. And I work not only in my community, but I do locums in other small rural communities as well. So I came through rural family medicine training and then did a plus one in emergency medicine in Calgary. And I'm in my first year of practice. All right. So you have an interesting gunshot wound case to tell us about. Yeah. So this was in one of my first, I think it was about my third or fourth month of practice. I came on to the night shift at midnight and it was fairly quiet. A couple patients in the department when we got a patch in from our EMS team saying they had a gunshot wound and would be there in under five minutes. I had only two nurses on that night with me, one with some emergency medicine experience and, and the other was new to the department, sort of covering from another department. So we quickly started to mobilize, getting airway equipment ready, calling for our backups being, you know, lab and x-ray because none of those people are in-house for us. But we really didn't have any other information at that point in terms of how stable the patient was or anything. So yeah, it felt like no time before the patient arrived. We were just getting things organized and enrolls our patient. Okay. So just to clarify, you get this patch saying we've got a gunshot wound, we'll be in there less than five minutes. You don't really know anything about the patient or where the wound was or the type of gun or anything like that. Correct. Gotcha. All right. So the patient rolls in and what do you see? Yeah, as the patient's coming in, I could see right away there was a paramedic holding a blood-soaked gauze over the patient's neck. And the patient was kind of coughing and moaning, trying to speak. And so I instantly right away was was concerned. I had a quick peek under the gauze and then asked immediately for our anesthesia and general surgery backup to be called in. Our community fortunately does have general surgery anesthesia on call 24 hours a day. So yeah, I asked the team to get them called in immediately, <laughs> just seeing that it was a zone two neck wound. Okay. And for the sake of my own recollection and for our listeners, can you just review what the three zones of the neck are? Yeah. So zone one is from the suprasternal notch up to the cricoid cartilage. And then zone two is from the cricoid cartilage to the angle of the mandible. And then zone three is above the angle of the mandible. So it's just kind of a way to think of what structures you're going to be considering to be potentially damaged in these patients. For sure. So this patient, with being his zone two, we're worried about critical spinal structures and blood vessels. It's just a a very high-risk area to have a penetrating wound. So one of the first things on my assessment was, you know, one is airway, as we always think. And he was actually able to speak a little bit and was trying to spit and things like that. And then the other one, the other big things is obviously neurological, and he was moving all four extremities. So that was information that I got just within the first 10 seconds of seeing the patient. 
That's very helpful. So what I'm gleaning is that his airway was intact enough that he was able to speak. He was moving air well enough, but there could very well be significant blood or secretions accumulating in the airway, which could cause a problem in that he's trying to spit and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm tentative to call it, I mean, he was protecting his airway, but it was one of those like high risk situations where I wasn't confident he would be able to continue protecting it. For sure, because trauma in that area of the neck can certainly lead to a swelling process, and you may not catch that early on if you're not thinking about it. And so the worst case scenario is that you leave some sort of unassessed neck injury and let it swell to the point where now the airway is closing off and it becomes extremely difficult to try and drop an ET tube and secure the airway. Correct. Yeah, so in this patient, I could see some neck swelling, and the patient actually told me it feels like it's getting difficult to breathe. And I could see the entry wound or what I figured was the entry wound, which was on kind of the lateral left side of his neck, but I couldn't see an exit wound, which was also concerning for me because I didn't know where the bullet was, where it was lodged or where had it exited from? Why wasn't I seeing that? Which also makes me worried about if I do proceed immediately with intubation, <laughs> I don't know what I'm dealing with, what I'm going to see. So that was concerning, especially in a low resource environment. For sure. I imagine by this point you'd had a look in his mouth. What did you see in the mouth? Just lots of blood. So profuse bleeding. I was concerned about uh, arterial bleed right away because of the rate of bleeding. Okay. So yeah, my initial approach was we got two suctions and was just helping the patient by suctioning. Again, he was speaking. There was no strider. He was able to kind of spit and he was able to cooperate when I would ask him to close his mouth to get the suction to bring the blood out, but I couldn't actually see where the bleeding was coming from at that point. I was suspicious it was somewhere towards the back of the throat, but not deep down, just because I could kind of clear the blood from the back of the throat area, and I didn't see anything coming up from lower, so that was about all the information I had at that point. It was just kind of a big mess. <laughs> For sure, yeah. No, it sounds like it. It sounds like a very scary situation, and certainly still as well within that realm of that airway swelling where this could be a catastrophe. And it sounds like you've already begun to prepare in that you've got your suction out. And of course, I know you well, and I know how diligent you are about airway management. So I imagine you had a whole bunch of other equipment laid out ready to go while you were waiting for the arrival of your anesthesia and general surgery colleagues. Yeah. So I really felt like I had to stay at the head of the bed and help manage this airway and also be watching for any signs, like in my head, I kind of was landmarking what is going to be my signal that I need to actually take this airway before my backup gets there. And in my head, I had decided on the patient's strider in respiratory distress, which he actually wasn't, thankfully, at the time. Or if he's getting where he's becoming altered, unable to speak, unable to cooperate with what we were doing, which was keeping his airway patent at the time, which was him sort of being able to like I would count and then we would do a, a mouth close on the suction and mm -hmm. clear everything out. Um, mm -hmm. So we kind of had that. But before they had come, I hadn't fully got my my airway stuff ready. I had my basics for intubation and the glide and direct and all of, all of that stuff out. But I actually was walking my nurse through getting the surgical airway stuff prepped as well while I was at the head of the bed waiting because I was quite concerned about if I do have to go to intubation before my team gets here, this was actually one of those high-risk situations where I was thinking this could end up going to a surgical airway. For sure. Yeah. I love it. When you think about that Swiss cheese model where bad things happen when you have these overlapping holes to the various different layers of protection and 
this patient sounds like one of those people. I mean, you've got your video scope ready to go, which is brilliant, but with the amount of blood, very likely that piece of equipment is not going to be helpful. And if that is your Hail Mary and all you're going to rely on and you get burned, then now you're scrambling. So I love the fact that you're already thinking about the surgical airway and you've got all of these things lined up, ready to go. How did his neck look? I mean, if you had to do a surgical airway, was that part of the neck low enough in zone three that you would have been okay? Yeah, absolutely. He was um, young. So this was like a 22 year old. Easy neck anatomy, though there was some swelling, but even despite that, it was actually quite easy to landmark on him. Perfect. And I think that should be a cause for a lot of relief and help bring our own heart rates down a little bit. When you look at that and you say, there's the backstop, I can do a surgical airway, which obviously is not your first choice, but it is your last choice. And we should be comforted by the fact that you can feel the anatomy and that your nurse is preparing and laying all that equipment out so that if the wheels come off, you can just pull that trigger right away. The other thing I wanted to comment on, Adrian, was you mentioned how you had signposted in your mind various criteria that would trigger you to abandon what you were doing and just proceed right to airway management, even if your colleagues hadn't made it in time. And I think that's brilliant because I think in cases like this, which are obviously very high anxiety for the medical professionals, it's very easy to confuse ourselves and trick ourselves into this false reassurance. Well, maybe I should wait because Dr. So-and-so, the anesthetist is arriving and he'll be the best first choice. So maybe I should just delay and drag heels. But all the while, the pathology could be dramatically worsening to the point where it's so bad when this doctor arrives that he or she is not able to pass that tube. So we have to be careful as emergency physicians, particularly rural and resource limited physicians, that we have these backstops in our mind and we're very clear as to what the indication is and when we need to actually do whatever that interventional procedure is and no longer drag our heels. Yeah. Good on you for thinking about that and having that ready to go. And I think that's too, like my classic training before this moment was any sort of wound in that area. And the goal would be to capture the airway as quickly as possible. But it was mostly just a gut feeling I had in this case was that he's still protecting and maintaining. He's not getting worse from the airway standpoint. And I really felt like it was a high risk airway for me to be going alone. And again, I don't have RT. I don't have I you know, only really had one nurse with me who had some emergency department experience. So yeah, it was kind of a decision I made that maybe goes slightly against some of the teaching, but the teaching that we have is for these higher resource environments where you've got your team there. So yeah, in this situation, it worked out okay for me to go that way, but I'm certainly acknowledge that a penetrating neck wound is high risk. And most of the time we would want to capture that immediately if safe to do so. For sure. But let me reframe that for a second. I think you were not at the point where you're saying, I'm not going to protect this airway. You were simply trying to optimize the intubating conditions as you were laying out the various equipment for your plan A, B, C, D. But also part of that optimization process is acknowledging that someone with more training is coming along. And if you can delay safely that two or three minutes or however long it was extra, you are potentially optimizing your intubating conditions. So from my yeah. perspective, in that you're working in a resource limited environment, I don't think what you were doing was unreasonable at all. Plus you had that final level of backup saying, if this patient begins to exhibit these signs, you've mentioned Strider, for example, then I'm going to pull the trigger and do this now. Because really what you're doing is you're 
constantly adjusting that risk benefit ratio in your brain. And at the moment where you were deciding I'm still waiting, there was that perceived benefit to wait. But if the criteria changed, then that benefit risk ratio readjusts itself and therefore becomes an indication to go ahead and intubate. Yeah, totally. It's just a different way of looking at things when you are in a resource limited environment and you don't have that full resuscitation team ready to go in the back corner of the room. So no, I think what you did was very appropriate. So tell us how it went. So the anesthetist presumably arrived and what happened then? Yeah, so it's actually our uh, our general surgeon arrived first, very skilled, experienced general surgeon, and he had a quick peek at the wound and went to get a scope just to have a little, a fiber optic, just to have, be able to have a peek first, because he had the same question as, where is the bullet? And we, at this point, x-ray had arrived, I believe, as well, so we were getting ready to get an x-ray. And, and then our anesthetist arrived after. He had a quick peek as well. The surgeon came back with the fiber optic. We had a look. They couldn't really see anything with it, but it didn't look like there was any damage to the actual area of the cords or anything like that. So yeah, they decided to go ahead. Our anesthetist took a look with the video, was not able to see anything and immediately went to direct and then he got it right away with that. So perfect. once the area was captured, it was everyone had a big sigh of relief. For sure. And at that point, it became much easier to have a look around and which point we could see the bullet had appeared to have come out of the mouth was the thought. The x-ray showed us that there was no bullet anywhere inside his neck or kind of face structures, but part of the mandible did appear to be sort of disrupted and the bottom of the floor of the mouth. Interesting angle on the shot there. For sure. For sure. I'm trying to imagine that in my mind going through zone two and then exiting through the mouth. But um, yeah, stranger things have happened. The story was that we eventually got from the police officers was that where the patient had been walking, somebody had been hiding, waiting to shoot him. Um, and the patient heard a noise and actually looked back over his left shoulder and that's when he was shot. So the bullet kind of came from behind, which made the angle make sense actually that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So as he looked back, the bullet came up and came through his neck, but it came, I guess the person must've been down on the floor shooting upwards is what we could figure. So. Wow. Strange. Okay. Yep. (laughs) Wow. And so in the end you secured the airway and this person presumably went out to a trauma center for management or did he end up staying in your community? No, we have, again, like the surgeon that was on that night, very experienced, has done a lot of trauma. And this patient obviously had a arterial bleed. It was the facial artery, I believe. It was right near one of the branches off the carotid. So yeah, throughout the intubation, everything, I was actually holding pressure in that area We took the patient immediately to the OR. He was given just two units of blood and our surgeon was able to go in and actually do a repair there to stop the bleeding, which was fantastic because otherwise the timing on our transports is not fantastic. For sure. We have a limited amount of blood, so that was super helpful. Do you happen to know how many units of blood you have in your facility? I believe we have 10 units. We did have a case where a patient required eight units of blood. Wow. And anyone who works rural knows that your blood supply is, it's a factor. And you only have so much of unmatched blood and yeah, your universal donor blood is limited. And so, yeah, there's various limitations and getting these patients to a bigger center is important when you can't control the source. But again, we're very fortunate to have a surgeon who could control the source for us on this patient. For sure. 
your community is extremely well set up, yeah. which is really good because of where you are and the level of pathology you get. Before you and I started recording, we were just laughing about how your community is such a wild and crazy and fun place to work, especially when you're starting out. And I think it's worth putting a plug in. I mean, we're trying to respect some patient privacy here, so we're not going to say the name of the community, but I would like to put a plug in that Adrian's community is a great place for emergency physicians who are early in their career starting out to potentially go and practice. And this is just one of three gunshot wounds you've seen in the last six months. Is that right, Adrian? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that's incredible because... I've been practicing now for 15 years or so, and I think I've seen maybe one BB gun shot to the hand <laughs> in comparison to these three crazy injuries that you've seen. And it's not just gunshot wounds, it's a whole bunch of really interesting, crazy pathology with this really nice regional facility with a very aggressive surgeon and great support and whatnot. So yeah. if you're listening to this and you're approaching practice or you're looking for an interesting new location to work, this particular place is in a beautiful location and is currently advertising a full-time emergency position, I believe, but there's always plenty of locum work. Yeah. If you're interested, let us know through the podcast. Just go to the show notes page there. It's podcast.rnrrounds.ca. Drop us a note and I'll put you in contact with Adrienne and she can discuss more of the opportunities and let you know if you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Final thoughts on this case, Adrian? I think in hindsight, I think when you're in, especially when you're in a rural community, a smaller community, and I've often thought about this, if I was in a community where there wasn't a surgeon, where we had more limitations on blood, if I didn't have backup anesthesia, how would this have gone differently? And I think it's it's just a plug for being mentally prepared for these situations to come up. When I think about it, I'm like, could I have captured this airway on my own? Yes, I could have, but I would need to have been fully prepared for all steps along the way. And that goes for any patient. So I, I think that, yeah, it's, you just don't know what's going to come in, in these, in these communities. And it's not like you're going to get this big heads up all the time where you can get a full team there ahead of time. And again, if you're in an even smaller place, you may be looking at a, a transport time, but it's launching all of your resources as soon as possible. So if I was in a smaller community, getting a critical care transport team on route ASAP, to help out with this and really advocating that I need that support as soon as possible from whatever tertiary center I'm calling. Yeah. And just sort of running these kind of cases through your mind on a regular basis so that you're not shocked by it, especially in the middle of the night, because middle of the night brain is not the same as daytime brain. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. I totally agree with everything you're saying there, Adrian. When we are in rural, remote, resource-limited locations, and the more that you are in any of those particular definitions, the more aggressive you need to be when it comes to these critical, unstable patient presentations. We just don't have the time or the resources to be able to play a long time. And so you need to get that airway secured, you need to get that bleeding controlled, and you need to get that transport team on its way because you have a limited amount of blood, if any, available to you. So yeah. great learning points. I really appreciate it. 